Hello and happy new year. Um, it's certainly been a wild ride uh, right up until today. So thank you for joining the um, first photo book book group of 2021. Um, we hold unscripted conversations and this began online due to the pandemic. And what happened was we actually created a global network of interested photographers and people interested in bookmaking. Um, each session has and takes a unique direction based on the theme of the book and the particular creative practice and bookmaking decisions that each person who we're interviewing has gone through. And it's really fun to be able to talk to people and follow um, basically what has taken the road of an idea often to a project, from a project to a book. And um, I'm really excited that we have Dennis to share on the book and major project, North by Nuke, uh, Greenland after Rockwell Kent. So um, for those of you who are new to the photo book book group, um, you will all receive a uh, follow-up email, which has a summary of what we covered, some of the topics that got pulled out in our discussion, as well as some of the resources and links to them, because that is the rich part of what has happened uh, from this virtual community. I tell the story of our very first photo book book group, where an American photographer who had photographed in Iraq was given a Middle Eastern resource to exhibit by a photographer in Africa. Um, and that's the kind of connecting I'm very excited to offer a platform to have happen. So we have a whole roster of books coming up for the next three months and the list will be published within the next week. We had three outstanding dates to confirm before we went forward. And just a few housekeeping items. If you've hung with us this far, thank you. Um, we tend to um, have little kinks and today it seems like we had one of our bigger ones. So I apologize for that. And I think when we do the investigating, uh, we will correct it for the next time. Um, I'm going to enter into conversation with um, uh, Dennis, and then leave plenty of room for, for questions, and this can take all kinds of, of direction. Um, so we are fortunate to speak with Dennis Defabau um, about his process in creating this matrix that was a project that is so well, both complex and well-rounded. So I'm really excited to get into how you decided what first and kind of the backward uh, take. I know that you were inspired by the um, lantern slides uh, that were taken in 1931 um, by Rockwell Kent. So you were both a professor at RIT um, and an avid photographer, documentary photographer who's been to lots and lots of different places um, and use your camera as a, uh, a tool to share information. Um, a couple of amazing facts that I learned by digging into your book, which I find uh, amazing. Um, this land that I call bold beauty. Um, I have such respect for Nuke and that when I learned it was settled 4,200 years ago, 
I cannot imagine the intrepid DNA that is going through the Inuit people. Um, I learned there are four times as many dogs as people, and I can understand why. I believe now. And um, I'm going to ask you later to go into this, but this notion of Scylla, S-I-L-A, which was the power of nature, every kind of weather, and the consciousness of all sentient beings, one and the same. Seems like a belief that's also potentially in the DNA of these people. I'm happy to report that Nuke, the capital, voted in a women prime minister when they came under uh, home rule. And I love the decision um, of yours, which that the fact that you put the um, book in Greenlandic language as well as English, I thought was a very important choice and was really glad to see it. And um, I have a, uh, a personal connection to Iceland and have been fortunate to visit several times. I say that I have family there, but they are not really blood related. And we've often talked about the fact that Iceland and Greenland should trade names. Um, because Iceland has one glacier and it doesn't cover the whole country and Greenland is a glacier basically. Um, so it's fascinating and I'm really excited to, to get into what you have to tell us and there's only one other frame that I'd like to, um, to give people because um, one of the people that's referenced in the article, the um, forward that was written um, is Sarah Pink, who wrote a book called Doing Visual Ethnography, Images, Media, and Representation. And I, I take very seriously uh, the responsibility of representation, and I hope that we get to talk about that um, at length in this conversation. So this is what Sarah Pink said, and I quote, fundamental to understanding the significance of the visual in ethnographic work is a reflexive appreciation of how such elements combine to produce visual meaning and ethnographic knowledge. Because when you enter into this situation, the layers between the cultural, the ethnic, the religious, the cultural, the historical, the governing structures, um, and then because you are coming in 80 something years later, all of the modern day contemporary impact, including technology and um, climate change that you had to, to kind of grapple with. And I know that from reading your book, Kent states that his goal that is of his work was that my photographs, um, my the goal of my photographs, he states, was to develop a reflective ethnology to determine reality versus representation. So I would love to open it up to you, Dennis, and, and basically begin with, um, Possibly what was your original goal uh, or initial goal? Because I have a feeling that this took on a life of its own. And I think you are a natural connector slash collaborator because you came to this with so many different ideas and experiences and frankly products as a result of this. So welcome and thank you. And um, if you wanna share your screen, I normally do roll through the images. Um, All right. Well, thank you for the introduction. You're and welcome. Thanks for having me today. You're welcome. And can people see that or no? And I need to share screen, I guess. Yeah, you have to go to share screen and then hit the one that is holding the uh, PDF. 
There we go. Let me. Perfect. That's great. And if you want to go into view, you can do full page, I believe. Uh, I think this this is good. Okay, great. Um, And I'm sorry to have you steer and talk. I've been in that position and I apologize. (laughs) Um, Man, there's a lot of things to talk about, but I I think we'll start maybe from the beginning. And uh, my knowledge of Greenland was very minimal and probably like everybody else, I would be calling it Iceland instead of Greenland. But um, I was always interested in Rockwell Kent's work and I started to get into his books about Greenland and uh, North, North or N by E is his first book that he wrote about Greenland. And it's really a very, very easy read with beautiful, beautiful woodcuts, uh, illustrations in it. And it was, I just liked the way he wrote. And I liked his adventurous kind of quality uh, in terms of his, his work and what he did. He loved cold, uh, isolated, places that was the thing that made him the happiest and the funny thing he lived in new york city most of the time so talk about uh dichotomy there but anyways uh this was back in about uh 2012 is when i first started thinking about uh greenland and doing something that would be kind of a comparative study based on Rockwell Kent's time in Greenland. And it took, it definitely took some time to make that happen. Um, And I did meet with uh, Sil Esposito at the SUNY Plattsburgh uh, Rockwell Kent collection. And just by accident, I I was just there to look at the museum and, just get a sense of what's there. And I, I don't know, I can't even remember how it happened, but I ended up with this wooden box of lantern slides that Rockwell Kent made in, in Greenland. And I opened it and I pulled one out and it was just like a jewel. And it was a gemstone photograph that I looked at and I said, this is amazing. And that got the whole process going of me wanting to go to Greenland and wanting to go kind of in the footsteps of Rockwell Kent, but to take a very contemporary approach to it. It wasn't a re-photographic approach at all. It was about creating new work from Greenland. And let me get to a couple. Well, let's, let's talk about the map real quick. Um, you mentioned Nuke. This is Nuke down mm-hmm. here. Nuke is the capital. It has about 7,000 people. I think they knew. Uh, and to, so you know, uh, the population of Greenland has increased about 50 people in the last 30 years. So Whoa. it's not growing very fast. 
and there aren't many people moving to Greenland. And the whole, my whole approach to this, to the book and to this story is kind of a takeoff on N by E, which is North by East. And it's about Kent sailing from the Canada to Greenland. And he actually landed just south of Nuke. And uh, the first night they were in Greenland, they, they anchored in a fjord and a giant storm came up and sank their boat. And the, that about midnight of that evening, Kent took off to find uh, help. And he eventually did, fell in love with Greenland and returned to Greenland three other times between 1929 and 1935. And he spent most of his time in Nuuk and in Sisimut, which is the second largest city or town. And actually most of the uh, residents of Sisimut say uh, Sisimut is the largest town in Greenland. They say Nuuk doesn't count because it's just a little Denmark. So, oh, right. I read, yeah. <laughs> they think Nuke is kind of given up. Then mm -hmm. Umanok, which is this beautiful little town on the island of Umanok, uh, overshadowed by the mountain of Umanok. Um, and then 90 miles north of Umanok is, is Lorswit, where I spent most of my time and where Kent spent most of his time. And it's Loris was about 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let me keep going here. So this is a view from uh, it's Lorswit. And I saw this every day that I lived there. Just the, the landscape is pretty much overwhelming in Greenland. It's so dynamic and broad and it just it was funny i met a kayaker one day who just ended up stopping in Isloreswit and he had been uh, kayaking through the Umanok fjords which this is that we're looking at and he was saying you're kayaking and those mountains look like you'll be there in an hour and he said, 12 hours later, paddling, it still looks like they're an hour away. And so it's just Perception. overwhelming. Uh, I'm trying to get to my area. Let's just pull it down. Um, this is one of the photographs I'm, I really enjoy. Uh, this was a uh, flying back from Isloreswit. Traveling in Greenland is not easy. It could take, it, it's about 400 miles from Nuuk to Isloreswit. And it usually takes about a week to travel from uh, Isloreswit to Nuuk. And especially in the summer, it's at least a week. And mostly because you're you're having to wait in airports uh, for a day or two for the next flight. Um, to fly from 
nuke to, let's say, Isloreswit. You fly from nuke to Sisimute to Elulaset to um, Kotar to Umanak to Isloreswit. And the last three flights are helicopters. The first flights are uh, propeller airplanes. Um, there's no security in Greenland. People walk onto the airplanes carrying guns, uh, the hunters that is, it's, or people that were in nuke to buy a gun or something like that. So it's not unusual to see a gun uh, on an airplane uh, and it's never really a concern. Uh, they don't check bags, uh, anything like that. So anyways, this photograph was taken right at dusk and I was flying from Islorswit into Nuuk and it was just a beautiful, beautiful evening. Mm -hmm. I'm so, uh, I was flying from Islorswit into Umanak. What season are we looking at? This is winter. Okay didn't know. I mean, it looks it, but I, yeah, <laughs> it could this be. Fjord, this is ice. Mm -hmm. And right over here, right about here is my house. I lived in that house for about three months. Can you tell us how you secured something like even the house to live in or where to, I mean, I, I know you were following, uh, Rockwell's somewhat up the coast, but yeah, there's just so many layers. Let me, I'll go back to uh, like uh, 2014. Um, <clears throat> when I finally decided I did want to uh, try and go to Greenland, the only way I could do this project would be with a National Science Foundation award. Mm -hmm. um, it's so expensive to travel there and um and it is very remote obviously so you, you definitely need funds to make it happen and i met with anna Cortula, who at the time was the program director for the social science program and uh, she was very excited about this project and really wanted it to happen. So uh, I worked with uh, Mark Nuttall, who is probably one of the most, one of the more famous Arctic anthropologists who's from uh, the University of Calgary. And he's also the head of climate uh, change in Greenland. And he was, he was excited about this also. So we applied, uh, it, the proposal was rejected by NSF um, and Anna said, try again. They loved the, the, loved the idea, needs to be more science oriented. And so we uh, applied again the following year. So we're up to like right now we're about 2014 and uh, we were rejected again. And Mark was so pissed off. He goes, forget this. I'm not 
I'm not even going to apply again. And Anna was just saying, you're so, so close, you know, <sighs> doing it. And uh, so Mark quit. He left. And um, and so I worked with Anna. We met uh, some other people. Uh, one person was a PhD in the study in Greenland. Another person was a professor at the University of Greenland. And the third person was a historian, a Greenlandic historian, um, Axel Jeremiasen, and then uh, Yetta Rygaard was the professor. And uh, so we got this team together, rewrote the proposal, and it was accepted. And, uh, it was amazing. And it allowed us to start this project. And it started in uh, 2016, uh, in the spring of 2016. And, um, and the, the main place, well, the first place we went to was Nuke uh, to kind of organize everything and get started. And, and then uh, we flew from there to its Lorswit to start our project. I did. I wanted to read something that Kent wrote about Is Lorswit. Uh, Kent's writing is much more descriptive, I think, and a little more uh, romantic uh, than mine. But I, I really enjoy it. Uh, and he's talking about uh, going into uh, Is Lorswit, and he went by boat, obviously, instead of airplane. Its seagirt isolation, along with the grandeur of its stark snow-covered tableland and higher peaks, the dark cliff barrier that forms its western shore, there is a glamour of imponderable mystery about the island which dignifies it even at the gateway of a region of stupendous grandeur. Its cliffs, proclaiming inaccessibility, preclude the thought of human settlements. So it's not, when you read things like that, it's not like, wow, I can't wait to go there. You know, it's, uh, he doesn't really write in terms of making it sound wonderful. You know, he also wrote about how he wanted to be in places that uh, created such a challenge for survival. And um, anyways, uh, when he moved there, he built a house. Uh, Kent was an amazing person in terms of talents. He could do just about anything. Uh, he was a navigator. He was a writer. He was an architect. He was an amazing painter, illustrator, uh, printmaker. Uh, he was incredible, really. Do I recall that you have a photograph of his house? Um, I don't know if there's one in the book or not. Okay, well, I feel like there I saw. There are photographs of his house. And his house, actually, he built it in 1935. And, or actually, I'm sorry, he built it in 1931. And it's also uh 
gives you an idea of what it's like living in Greenland. He, he had to go to Umanok to get all the building supplies for the house. It's, it's a wooden house. Uh, at the time, there were very few wooden houses in Greenland. There were hardly any in Islorswit, maybe one or two. And they have to import all the wood from Denmark because there are no trees in Greenland. And so he got everything, got it to Islorswit, was getting ready to build his house. And he realized that they did not send any nails with the house. So he went crazy and he just was yelling, complaining for, for weeks about not having nails. But somehow he got the house built and it was there until he left in 1936 to come back to the United States. And um, he gave it to one of the Inuits on the island and they ended up moving to Umanok in 1938 and they took the house with them so uh, the house doesn't exist and it's Lorswood anymore yeah can you bring us forward to some more photographs as sure. you because uh, this is amazing I mean I love how um, thoroughly you have investigated Kent um, yeah amazing well, yeah, it's funny when you're in Islorswit, I lived there for over three three to four months, almost four months, and not a lot to do. <laughs> and so reading was my pastime. Uh, <laughs> and how, uh, like, what was the total time that it was, I thought I read 15 months that you were in Greenland total? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And that was from uh, spring of 2016 till summer of uh, 2017. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in Islorswit most of the time, about four months in Islorswit and maybe three months in um, Umanok, uh, probably three months in Sisimut and maybe four months in uh, Nuuk. And so consecutively, like you went well, and didn't come back to the no, States? No, for a couple, I came back for the holidays. Um, you know, it would have probably been a good idea to spend the holidays there, but it was, you know, it's dark the whole time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it would have been interesting to make photographs, but I just had to do... I mean, take care of business and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So I came back about the middle of December and then went back the beginning of January. And, uh, and so, but most of the time I was there and wow. traveling around most of the time between those four communities. Did you need an interpreter? My interpreter was Axel Jeremiahson, the historian on, on our team. And the funny thing, this is how little I know, or my intuition is not very good sometimes. I, the, the two ladies and I, uh, we had our team, and then one of them suggested that we should really get Axel, who's a historian and knows the periodicals of Greenland from 
you know, the era that we're looking at Kent. And I go, what do we, I don't know, why do we need a historian? You know, I don't, I don't get it. And, and they talked me into it, which is a good thing because I could have not, I could not have done what I did without his help. He was mm -hmm. a great, great person. He did the interpreting for me. He interpreted so much. I kind of felt sorry for him because he was so busy mm -hmm. uh, with us. Um, and just a, a great person. He taught me so much about Greenland, Greenland culture, how to interact with people. Uh, he introduced me to so many people. It seemed like everyone, everywhere we went, he knew somebody. And uh, he always wanted me to uh, meet with them. And I, you know, with all the politics that are going on right now, one of my... Uh, most interesting experiences. I was in Greenland when the presidential election was going on and one woman insists, I was in Sisamute and a woman that I met actually through, a, at the beginning of each session in each community, we would do a presentation to the community and tell them why we were there, what we wanted to accomplish. We wanted to see what they knew about Rockwell Kent and share that information. So uh, it was at the Systemute Museum and I was doing a slideshow of Rockwell Kent's work. And uh, you know, I knew some of the people in the photographs and there was one photograph that I showed that had um, two people that worked with Kent and then there was another person, a younger person, and I didn't know her name. And I told that to the audience. I told them who those two people were and the other person. And someone in the back raised their hand and she goes, I think that's my grandmother. And she goes, they, they called her the round one. Mm. And, and she was kind of round. And uh, so... At the end of the talk, she came up and she goes, why don't, you know, why don't you come to my house for dinner and I'll show you some pictures and we can decide if this is really her in the photograph. And I did, and, uh, and I'm sure it was her. But she's also, she was interested in politics in the United States. And she goes, who do you think is going to win the, the election? And I said, well, for sure, Hillary's going to win. There's no way Trump is going to win. And she goes, well, it's prophesized that Trump is going to win. And I go, what? And she goes, it's in the Bible. And so I, I never heard of such a thing. And she goes and gets the Bible and he she goes to a passage and she starts reading the passage and it sounds just like Kent actually, mm. or not Kent, just like Trump. And, you know, I go, I, I don't believe that at all. And she, she kind of slams the Bible closed and she goes, since you're not a believer, there's no reason to keep talking about this. And so she put the Bible away and, and we, I, we were very good friends. We became very good friends. And um, so I met, I'm with Axel and we're with friends of his watching the election. And I knew that Trump was going to win. And the next day I texted 
the woman who said Trump was going to win, I said, I cannot believe your, your prediction was correct or the prophecy was correct. Mm -hmm. And she goes, well, God does not lie. And wow. Was, she was an amazing person, really. I, but, I, I, so let me just ask. So people do learn English. You were able to talk with her. Yes. In English. And, from English. Her husband was Danish mm -hmm. and he spoke English, Danish, Greenlandic. It's really difficult for people to learn Greenlandic. There are very few non-Inuits speaking Greenlandic. Uh, some do, obviously, um, but it's not easy. Um, yet the Rygard, my uh, partner on this project, she lived in Greenland for 25 years and never hardly spoke any Greenlandic. Interesting. I know in Iceland, it's uh, Iceland happens to be one of the most um, literate countries in the world, and everyone uh, speaks English. And I was visiting our family, and at the time I was twelve, and the family member was sixteen, and he was reading War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> kind of amazing. But one question: I'd love for you to show some more imagery, if you can. I I, I think your stories are very important, and I'm really interested. But I have had the pleasure of being with the images for a while, and maybe some people on the call haven't. One thing that you're making me think of, because this woman brought up her religious belief, I was going to ask you, I understand from reading your, your, the book that Lutheran and Moravian belief systems were, right. were structural there. So I, I would really be interested if you could um, both take us through some photographs um, and, and I guess what I'll tell you is a couple of areas that I'm, I'm so curious as to how belief systems uh, are faring now. And I know that um, there was one photograph at the end of the book where it was a sun dog that you took a photograph of and it was believed that in Greenlandic myth that that was where shamans could could traverse worlds. So I'm thinking there is so much that has been after this 4,000 plus civilization and culture um, rivaling things like you texting about a US election. It's just mind boggling to think about the span of that and the impact of that. Um, so I, I got thinking also in looking at some of your images about the gender roles about livelihood um, and about the structures, what what does exist in terms of, um, you know, it's no lo longer a colony and and yet I think there must be very historic ways of, of organizing the culture that might come up against some challenges with contemporary ways of quote unquote organizing people. So anything around that insight that you gained. Um, and even I love hearing about that particular person because um, I can only imagine some of the personality traits to be able to live in a place that goes dark for so long um, and has such um, limited access. So, yeah. Boy, that's a lot. It um, is, but <laughs> bring us to bring us to a landscape or two, because I don't think we've been able well, to show where you have lived. 
Okay, first I wanted to, this is Greenlandic. I, I don't know how well you can see this on your screens, mm. but it's uh, a very complex, mm. uh, deep language. And you can see right here, I don't, again, I don't know how easy you can see this, but this mm -hmm. word has probably 30 letters in it. <laughs> and that's, it's probably half of a sentence right there mm, mm, so mm. it's not like you know, english where you're learning words and putting it together into a sentence in mm -hmm. each individual word where in greenland words become combined with other words and become longer newer words which it's it's not like you can learn a few words and start speaking greenland greenlandic you it do doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know there's 36 letters in the Icelandic alphabet. I think it's probably about the same in Greenlandic. Mm. Um, icebergs, I have so many photographs of icebergs. I put more in the book than I probably should have because I just I feel like there were a lot of people that have photographed icebergs and um, I thought it was more important to show people places um, but I the icebergs were amazing I think I could do a whole book just on icebergs I actually think you could and I'm not one of the women that you um, worked with, the director, Ann Anderson, at the Umanic Polar Institute, I loved yep. what she said. She said, our iceberg moves every day, and it's a piece of abstract art. She's a, another amazing, amazing woman. Um, she's just done so much with the Umanic Children's Center. She, uh, they are very attached to Greenlandic culture, Greenlandic history, uh, the people at the, the children's home, most of them are there because either they don't have parents or their parents live maybe in Denmark or something like that and the children don't. Um, but she, she has all of them involved with music, playing instruments, and they will travel around the world. They've been everywhere from Australia to Hawaii to the United States, uh, Europe, all over Europe. And the children perform uh, traditional Greenlandic uh, music. And wow. it's just, it's pretty incredible. But this is some of the travel this is uh, landing by helicopter in Islorswit. That's the helicopter. That's the helipad. That's basically the the airport in Greenland, in Islorswit. Uh, this is one day a friend of mine. We were driving on the the ice in the fjord in the middle of winter, and you would think you know the ice is probably at this point three or four feet deep but we ran into water and he got kind of nervous. And so we turned around. Hmm. Um, this is Esther, she was, she's the midwife in uh, Islorswit, hmm. which I've, 
I don't know any, I didn't see anybody who was pregnant in Isloriswit. Uh, Aaron Long, he, I think he's the oldest person living in Isloriswit. This was my next door neighbor. This is actually taken just outside of my house. Uh, and he was coming back from a hunt. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but the the blood on the dog's faces. I assume what happened, they, they usually go out seal hunting or well hunting, uh, but I, I'm guessing with as much blood that's on their faces, they probably found a well carcass and the dogs went to town on it. Hmm. Uh, or he could have shot a couple uh, seals and they ate that, but I, I think it's much bigger. How did you adjust to the diet there or the offerings? Actually, I ate very well, you know, not uh, bad food, actually very good food. I had fish all the time. Um, they're fishing for cod, ice fishing for cod, and they, they catch so there are so many cod. We were out one day um, with a friend. He just said, do you, want, do you want any cod for dinner? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, come on out. I'll catch some for you and drop you off. And then I have, I'm going to go fishing. So we, we just went in the bay on his boat. And in a matter of I, not even five minutes, he probably caught 30, 35 cod, at least that size, if not larger. And he filleted them right there for us and took us back to the dock. We got off, we went and ate our cod and he went out fishing. So it's not nothing, it's nothing for them. If they want fish for dinner, they just go out and catch it in a matter of minutes. Uh, seals, they do eat seals. I ate seal, I ate whale, I ate polar bear, I ate uh, berries, uh, these little leaves that they kind of make salads out of. They're, they're just very, very low bushes on the, on the terrain and they make salads out of that. Um, muskox um those are probably in reindeer obviously reindeer probably is the most in terms of meat uh the most that they would eat they like reindeer a lot they love well um and i just it's funny they have these well i'll talk about it once we get to uh, a photograph that shows some of the food. Um, I you would walk on the fjords every day in the winter. I would go out and walk around the icebergs that were trapped in the ice. And usually on Sunday, it was a fairly busy day of families out on the ice. And uh, this was a family that I saw walking and I asked them to photograph, take a photograph of them. Um, this is Alagut. He was probably the best hunter in Isloriswit. He had the biggest boat. Um, 
he would kind of complain about the other hunters in, in the town that they don't work hard enough. If they just fished more, they would have a lot more money and they could buy a bigger boat or something. Uh, this was uh, Benjamin, or this is Benjamin. Benjamin was my next door neighbor. He became a very good friend. Um, he would come to my house and you know, we would have coffee and I would have cookies or whatever. And he didn't speak English. I obviously I didn't speak Greenlandic, but we would laugh and try and communicate. And he did it probably a couple times a week. He would come by and, and visit. So this wonderful this photograph was taken on my birthday and it was just an amazing birthday. It was October 4th and early in the morning I was out photographing and one person came up to me and gave me a necklace, a uh, hand carved necklace. And, you know, and he said, you know, birthday. And I, I have no idea how he even knew it was my birthday. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, he was, it was just, a friend. And uh, Benjamin, you know, he, this is called a wolf fish. He caught two wheelbarrows full of wolf fish and he would just uh, make a long line and run the long line out into the bay, maybe 150 yards or so and drop it into the bay. And then he would come back and then an hour and a half later, he would start pulling the long line in. And these are the kind of fish that were on the line. And these wolf fish are amazing. They're so good. And we ended up eating this fish about an hour later uh, for my birthday. And it was just a big pile of fish in a plate. And we all had forks and there were four of us around the plate and we would just dig in and eat. Mm. Um, great guy. Uh, this is Sophie. I was visiting with her one day. I actually brought her a photograph that I had taken earlier that, and I give photographs to everyone. I had a printer with me. I brought a printer, I brought paper and ink. And so anyone that I photographed, I would give prints to. And I gave her a print and she invited me in for coffee. And I, I finished the coffee and I said, well, I, sh I should be going. And she goes, aren't you going to take my picture? And so I go, yeah. And, and so we talked about where we wanted to take the photograph. And she goes, how about in front of my son's painting? And I go, okay. And that was the photograph we made, the collaboration, definitely. And I asked her about the photograph and you know the sperm like things on the photo or on the painting and she goes well that's an homage to me from my son because i've had so many miscarriages that uh, my son calls me the baby maker but she's all she only had like two kids but she had a lot of miscarriages wow. uh, and i like i said on sundays uh, people go on the ice and walk, and and this is a good example of a Sunday stroll <laughs> with the baby. 
it's funny you would go to the grocery store and you would walk into the grocery store in the winter and there would be about five or six care uh, buggies baby buggies lined up outside the grocery store there would be babies in every one of those buggies you know just waiting for the mother the shop uh this there can be pretty bad weather uh we had about two feet of snow this day and these these guys are still building the roof in Isloriswit. Uh, this day was just amazing day. We we were uh, in the fjord. We took the fjord all the way to the end of the fjord, where um, the store great glacier is that feeds all the icebergs in that that uh, fjord. It was just amazing. It was snowing, raining, icebergs everywhere, uh, foggy. And it was funny when I, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time with these in Greenland, but when I would come back, I would start going through them and starting, you know, kind of working a little more on the edit. And this one I looked at and it was in August. I couldn't believe it. I was so cold that day and it was August. <laughs> I was going to ask about technical issues for shooting. Did you come up with problems because of the cold or the wet or surprisingly i had no problems at all uh, the cameras worked amazingly they were nikon cameras uh, the lenses were incredible i would come back from walking on the on the ice and the cameras as soon as i would walk in the house it would just freeze up it was like a ball of ice and uh, but never had a problem it was, and everybody was warning me before you go, you got to do this. You should never bring the, the camera inside. And I didn't do any of that. I just <laughs> did the normal and had no problems at all. So could you talk a bit about um, your Nikon? Uh, I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong, but you started or wove into the program working with middle school children and teaching yeah. photography. And I made an assumption that perhaps Nikon assisted in doing that. Um, they did. Okay. Thanks so, for bringing that up because I would have forgotten. That was a very important part of this project. We mm -hmm. taught photography to Inuit students and the students were anywhere from eight years old to probably 14 years old in different classes. And, and it's, in it's Lorswit, uh, there were only eight kids in school in the whole town. So everybody in, in the school was in the class and they were great. And Nikon gave us first, I wanted like a G5 or something like that from Nikon. And they were willing to give us those, but they go, this is, why would you give these cameras to, you know, young kids in the middle of winter um, why don't you use this? It was a point and shoot uh, all weather camera uh, that was actually worked fantastic. And again, we had no problems at all with any of those cameras and they were all over the place. And they gave us um, 25 cameras and we would, uh, usually the workshops lasted two weeks 
and the, we would give the cameras to the students and they would go out and photograph and I gave them assignments, you know, they had to photograph their, their friends and family. Um, they had to photograph dreams, uh, whatever that means, dreams that they had, dreams that they think about, uh, dreams that are mythical uh, from readings. And uh, it was, at first, all they did was photograph their friends you know, like snapshots and selfies and things like that. But after the first week, they started getting into things that are a little more aesthetic. And I was gonna, amazing work. I was going to interrupt to say two things. One is that I, as I, I believe that you then exhibited their work, which is um, and, and why I bring that up is that I think it's interesting to hear how the project grew because you, you were saying how you didn't know that you'd need a historian, but then you did actual video and interviews with people. So that's why I'm saying like, it felt like it grew to such a large matrix and, and that that takes a lot of collaboration. So, um, you know, uh, anything that you want to talk about those decisions or um, uh, guiding anyone else through it or what was the best, you know, I mean, it sounds like you, the serendipity here was just, just kept going for you. So like you, you are uh, a lucky, lucky person, but yes. yeah. You work at it too. And I knew we were going to do the students. We were going to teach photo workshops and I knew we were going to do the video kind of oral histories. We did 27 uh, videos and each one was about an hour long. And, um, and those are going to, uh, the National Greenland archives and they're actually going to the archives at RIT. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think probably one of the best things, you know, that occurred with the students is, first of all, you know, we started working with the students and the parents were much more receptive to us being there. And, uh, interested in what we were doing and bringing the community together to show the student work, to show Rockwell Kent's photographs at the same time uh, was another way to kind of uh, bring the community together and to actually give back to the community. And uh, so those things, uh, they were planned, but you know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. We didn't know if people would be willing to do it. And, uh, but, you know, we made it, we made it work and people were more than happy to work with us. And was the book a plan from the beginning and was RIT on board with that? The book was definitely a plan. It was part of the proposal. Um, RIT, I hadn't talked to a publisher prior uh, more than just suggesting that I'm going to be in Greenland photographing and I want to do a book from it. Uh, but, you know, no one was offering anything until they saw work and, uh, and a better idea because, you know, when I first started, it was more a matter of, okay, let's see what happens. And, um, 
and I was hardly home at all the whole time from Greenland. So it was a year and a half before I kind of came back and started putting this stuff together. And so, I, I have the job of just keeping an eye and I want to make sure that we have time for other individual questions. So um, what would, what, what I would like to ask is, is there a part that you want to show us um, either photographically or to speak about? Um, uh, I do want to talk about this photograph because I think it's beautiful. And it's, uh, <laughs> yes. This is spring. This is, um, I think this was actually my first time by myself in it's Lorswit because um, the four of us usually went to each community uh, for a, like a week or so to introduce ourselves, do the talk, talk to uh, the teachers about doing the photo workshops. And then the three of them would go back to the University of Greenland and if they were teaching or studying or whatever, and then they would leave me. So, you know, it was, it was always a little rough because you know nobody really knew me that well. They knew why I was there, um, but you know for the most part they just kind of ignored me. And so, anyways, I was walking around this one day and I came down off of this hill, and everybody's playing this kind of baseball game. They call it round ball, and it's very similar to baseball. There's a pitcher and they have bats and the bats are flat almost like a rugby or not rugby uh cricket mm -hmm. bat and so they're playing they all having fun old young kids you know everybody in the in the community are playing and it was just a way of seeing how we have this amazing amazing landscape and then we have the whole town playing a baseball game. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big differences between baseball and this, uh, instead of three bases, they have two bases and home plate. And when someone makes an out, they just stand off to the side until there are three outs. So you could, you could make an out and then the next person could make an out and you stand off to the side. And then the third person, so you have two outs, the next person gets a hit and everybody runs. So all three people run the first base and second base. And, and it's just so much fun. And um, yeah, that was a good time. Mm. Um, every time I photographed, you know, every time I was out and about, the kids were running to, they would say, Dennis, and you know, they'd, come and uh, see what I was doing. So I would let them photograph with my camera all the time. And they made some good, good photographs actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a, a coffee meek and a coffee meek is a get together for a birthday or an anniversary. And I'll show some other pictures uh, later, but um, so I got to the coffee meet kind of late and most everybody's invited to it. And the boy was, had, you know, he, it was his birthday. He was running around with his gun shooting and stuff. And 
And I just love the idea of him photographing and Bob Marley in the background with love. And, um, and these are just kids playing. This was my landlord's uh, husband and wife. They were really great to me, uh, had me over for dinner all the time. Um, and I, this photograph was taken. I, the way most people communicate is outside of the supermarket, uh, they would put notices on a, a billboard or a board and you just uh, push pin your note in there. So I wanted to photograph everybody in town. There were only 70 people in this town and I probably, the, the whole time I was there, I probably photographed 90% of them. And uh, so I said on such and such a date at such and such a time, it was a Sunday, I said from 12 until five, I'm going to be photographing everyone in my home and that uh, I would give prints to everybody. So it was like 1.30 that day and hardly anybody had been there, maybe one person. And then all of a sudden people just started coming and I, I photographed probably 30 people that day and gave prints to everybody and then people would catch me later in the week and say can you come and photograph us and uh so that's how things at first nobody even hardly talked to me mostly because they couldn't and uh but by this is getting close to the final days when i was there and so everybody is inviting me to come and photograph them and their kids. This is a lovely portrait, but I have to um, say every time I look at things, I, I, I'm thinking they've got glasses. Like to go to an eye doctor, everything just seems so challenging. Um, yeah. And I guess you go to Nuke for something like that. Um, yeah. There, there is a hospital in Umanok that have new doctors, has mm -hmm. two doctors, there's, and then obviously Nuke, uh, but for major problems, they go to Copenhagen, Denmark. Mm -hmm. You know what I'd like to do is um, uh, open up for questions from people that, that, that are listening, because, um, I mean, I'm just fascinated at it. And I guess I, I don't know that we've really um, been able to, 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 in terms of talking about responsibility and representation, oh, I love this image. Um, you are obviously, um, you were respectful and you were respected. Um, and I know that Kent talked about, you know, that he wanted to, um, to, to talk about reality versus representation. Like, do you feel like, how would you, how would you talk about the idea of your telling another culture story? What would you like to, what would you like to share about that? And then I'd like to open it up to anyone asking any other specific questions. 
well, I always have reservations about uh, being an American, going somewhere else and photographing, even being an American living in New York, going to New Mexico to photograph or whatever, because mm -hmm. uh, their culture is different than my culture. But I think if you, what is important to me is being kind of embedded into that culture, being part of that culture. That's why I spent that much time in Greenland. Mm -hmm. you know, I can't think of, there's no way I could have done very much if I went there for uh, a couple weeks. And uh, I probably could have concentrated on the environment, but that's that was part of it. But the important thing was the social aspect of Greenland mm -hmm. and the relationship people have with Greenland, the the country, the Greenland, the environment, mm -hmm. and their fellow Inuits. And that to me was the most important thing. That's why, you know, the portraits, uh, working with students, uh, really is an important part of this whole process. And also working with the students, it brought me closer to the parents and mm -hmm. got, brought me closer to um, the culture. And it got me invited to so many different things. And um, one of the things with uh, National Science Foundation, you have to have uh, releases from anybody. So everybody that's in these photographs, I have releases for. And I have photographs that I love that I didn't publish and I haven't shown to people because I don't have releases. And it's not because the people didn't allow me to photograph them. It's just, you know, I don't have that uh, piece of paper. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing about being invited to things, um, these two photographs are from Coffee Meeks that, uh, that I was invited to. The food is amazing. The pastries are incredible. <laughs> You're talking about food. I mean, here's salmon. This is, I think this is salmon as well. This is cod that's kind of, it's not ceviche, but it's mm -hmm. similar. This is well in, and this is kind of a delicacy in Greenland. And they always were getting me to eat well skin. And I could never, it's, it tastes like rubber. You know, it tastes, you know, and you chew and chew and chew and chew and it never stops chewing. <laughs> but they loved it. And I would always kind of, chew for a while and then I would pull it out of my mouth and put it someplace. But uh, this actually just after I photographed this photograph and I behind me is a stove with a giant pot and it was whale soup that was cooking. Mm. And so I asked the woman who hosted this if I could have some whale soup. and. She, she was so excited that I was going to have wet her well soup. And so she pulled, you know, sticks a fork in. I'm thinking it's soup. And she's sticking a fork in the soup. And she pulls out this hunk of well. And it's probably, I don't know, a foot long. 
you know, it has this whale skin on it, and then it has blubber that's probably six inches long, and then it has about three inches of meat on it. And she puts it on my plate, and I ate the meat first. It was really good. Then I started into the blubber, and it, it was so hard to eat. It was just not good in terms of texture and all that stuff. And then trying to eat, it was probably a hunk of skin this size. It was just very, very difficult to eat. But she was so happy I was eating it. And, and she goes, you know, she even said, she spoke a little English and she was so happy I ate the blubber because she said, it's gonna make my skin beautiful like the Inuit ladies. <laughs> so, so I had beautiful skin for a while. Wow. Um, I'm just going to let people unmute if they want to ask a question. Um, one th this is, I love this card. Um, anything that's signed to the North Pole goes to Umanak. Oh. And this is, <laughs> there were bags and bags and bags full of uh, cards to Santa Claus. And this one is just incredible to read. Uh, I'm not going to read it, but uh, you have to buy the book to read it. <laughs> uh, this is Dorothy. Um, the reason I took the photograph the way I did, she was telling me her finger is bent because of arthritis and from sewing so many silk skins. So um, her finger is always like that. And you can't really bend your finger the way it's bent there. Dennis? Yeah. Uh, I tried posting a photograph that I found on, face, on uh, Google. It's a scene taken by Kent and the scene taken by you, the same scene, but the, uh, the Zoom system won't let me put a photograph up. So I put a, a website address so people can go to that page if they want to see it. Oh, great. Great. Thanks. Um, all right, let me keep going. This is, I don't know if you remember Benjamin, the person carrying the wolf fish, the big fish, my next door neighbor. neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, he lost his finger when he was younger. Uh, to a hunting accident. And I always wanted to take a picture of it. And these are some photographs from the day that people came to have their pictures taken. Mm -hmm. Hello, uh, Dennis, can you hear me? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's Ben Altman. I was in Greenland many years ago um, working in the oil industry when they were doing some exploration in the Davis Strait. Uh, and in those days, the town was called Holsteinsborg. Uh, I think you now has a Greenlandic that, name. <laughs> that was uh, Sissimute. Yeah, that, that would be right, I think. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. uh, anyway, at that time, I had the impression that most of the Greenlanders were also part Danish. That there weren't any sort of purebred Inuit left. Um, oh. But also, it was kind. Of, it was kind of a party town, and I wondered mm. if you could comment on those two things. 
Well, maybe because of the job that you had, it was a party. Yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> was bringing um, some foreign money into the bars and things. Yeah. Like. I mean, I had good times in Sisamute. Um, we were there for Halloween. I had a great time for Halloween. Um, there were maybe three bars in Sisamute. Two of them were like side by side. Um, and we had... <clears throat> We never went there very often, um, but another place uh, we went some somewhat. Um, there is no bars uh, in Islorswit. There's one bar in Umanak. Um, it was funny uh, about the culture. It was the, the end of September and it was the time that the government was giving their uh, reimbursement tax checks back. And it was also their payday for whoever they were working with. So everybody like uh, in Andreessen at the children's home, I, a friend of mine who, was, who had a, a boat, fishing boat, uh, that employed probably a dozen people. They were all worried that for the next week, no one's going to show up for work because they have money now and they're going to spend it until they don't have money anymore. Then they'll, they'll show up for work again. And that Friday, uh, we ended up going to the bar at in uh, Umanok. The bar was packed. It was so much fun. People were dancing all over. And it wasn't, you know, it was older people, younger people, uh, you name it. And normally the bar is pretty quiet. But this evening when everybody had money, uh, they were having a good time. Dennis, when I was working, when I was working in Sweden, there were a lot of people who would go to Greenland to teach or to work. And because it's so difficult to get people to go there, that they didn't have to pay any taxes on whatever they earned in the country they came from. But they said one of the problems was is a terrible, terrible drinking problem in Greenland. Did you burn into that at all? Somewhat. I I don't think it was. I, I think it's probably more prevalent than maybe what I experienced, uh, especially in East Greenland compared to West Greenland. Um, East Greenland is much more isolated and it's more uh, hunting communities. And, um, but I will say, I mean, there, there were, there was talk about uh, alcoholism, uh, about um, uh, suicide. And I, really did not see much in the way of alcoholism more. I saw it with uh, the Danes that were there. They drank more than anybody, um, but there were definitely Greenlanders that drank a lot. And I think it was more like in Nuke and maybe Sisimute. Um And actually, I don't know if you remember the, the catechist, the woman with the black, down in the white collar. Um, she had three daughters and all three of them committed suicide. Mm -hmm. That I didn't meet very many people that 
knew of suicide victims, but she was one. And uh, so that's something that's just happened in the last, let's say, 20 years. Uh, before that, you know, I think people were very, very happy. And, and I think a lot of the suicide is caused by towns like Isloreswood. Is, and I know we're getting short on time, but Isloreswood from when I came back to the United States in summer of 2017, it would have been the end of July, that there was a tsunami that hit Isloreswood. And that tsunami was caused by a mountain falling into the fjord on the other side of the fjord. And um, everybody was evacuated from the town. There weren't any real uh, damage to that town. There was another town, Nugatsiat, that was uh, closer to the where the mountain slid into the fjord. And there were five people that died in that tsunami and houses were pulled into the fjord. But anyway, say the government um, evacuated both communities. They won't let anyone return to Islorswit. Um, it might be loosening right now, but uh, that was three years ago. And uh, I forget where I was going. going well, I think this. it was the trail was around the idea of mental health and how it, the, the mental yeah. health issues have been more prevalent uh, in the last 20 years. Yes, and because people, a number of small communities have been closed by the government because they can't afford to keep the communities uh, operating, let's say, funded, uh, people end up moving to Nuke or Sisimute, especially Nuke, and live in these giant row apartments and it's they're so so out of their element that they just can't deal with it mm -hmm. and i think that's where a lot of the um the problems came from or come mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm. but when i was there you know i i know it's there but i didn't see that much of either you know suicides and um drinking well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, those are uh, wrapped into both mental illness and alcoholism is very good hiding mechanisms, right? They're not they're not rampantly seen for the the pain they cause. Um, but it's it is fascinating. I, I was thinking of when you described how um, it, it it was it was one of your descriptions of your interactions with people and how I thought word travels and I'm really curious how it does because things would happen where I think you um, you experience being welcomed in and and I know that you mentioned outside the supermarket there's a way to communicate but I almost feel like there's this invisible. <laughs> you know, pre-cell phone network that's going on that I find fascinating. And but there, um, there were cell phones, definitely people, most people had cell phones. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, by the, t by the time I left Greenland, every, you know, you're always in airports, if you're going from one town to another. When I first got there, I knew nobody. 
And by the end, when I would be in an airport, I knew half of the people in the airport, which. Well, that, yeah, that's what I'm saying that there, it's like a, it is so connected that there, what I was meaning is that there's this way to communicate that is as effective as a cell phone, but it's not used as a cell phone, but is as a result of the way a community that is that isolated um, right. would share information. I, I mean, it's fascinating. And well, it's one time in Ulmanak, I was in waiting for the helicopter and I look and there's four kids kind of sitting in the corner. They're all on their cell phones. And I go, this is, this is anywhere in the world. Yes. That's, that's kind of how it was. But yeah. Bridging, bridging the gap between this, you know, traditional lifestyle. Um, it's, I'm sure the anthropologists are going to help us understand it. It's so impactful. And the world is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, it's like to be able to talk about the elect the election yes. in Greenland is pretty amazing. This image really fascinated me. The scale and it's incredible. Yeah, the kids on the icebergs. The kids are the only ones that go on the icebergs. Um, and I've never I I've seen icebergs turn over, but not in winter. Mm. Uh, but you could tell that you would be walking around the icebergs and they'd be cracking and you always are a little nervous about what's happening. Really incredible. I wonder if we have any last questions. Uh, yes, I just thought of something uh, regarding children. Um, uh, how, um, how many children grow up there and stay there? Or is it like what happens in, you know, so much of rural America, you know, kids grow up in small towns and then they move to the city. How much of that happens there? I think a lot of people move. Um, I, I don't think you were online when um, when I was talking about the population of Greenland, that it's only increased by about 50 people in the last 30 years. And, uh, and there just are not a lot of opportunities for people in Greenland. So, and a lot of them end up going to Denmark for high school or for college, and they don't come back. So, um, yeah, I would... I would say the ones that stay are the ones that are really, that really want to live as a fisherman or a hunter. Actually, you can't even make a living as a hunter now, but you can definitely as a fisherman. And um, they, they would do that. Uh, the person, I don't know if you remember one of the first photographs, it's on a dog sled and the, the musher was looking back at me and we were talking and he just he loves fishing and that's all he wants to do and uh, and he'll do fine you know he can make a good living in greenland as a fisherman it's hard work obviously um 
any other questions this is my backyard and this Laura's <laughs> this is going up to the helipad the day i left greenland well it's Lorswit for the last time we had about three feet of snow in two days this whole trail was covered in snow and i had to carry like five five bags up through about two feet of snow and that's a lot steeper than it looks and i was about ready to die and some people came down and helped me and uh, we took off it was a whiteout and the the pilot was flying to uh, Nugatziat. He couldn't even find it. And the mm -hmm. co-pilot pointing to where it is and he's, he can't find it. And then all of a sudden he just makes a big like U-turn and I'm sitting by the window and I'm looking and we get closer and closer and closer to this mountainside thinking, oh, are we ever gonna make it around and not run into that mountainside? And the whole time I'm thinking beyond that is what's going to happen to all this, you know, these exposures, the data. I, my hard drive. <laughs> and um, so he made it around and we were, I guarantee we were within 50 yards of that mountainside and he stayed along the mountainside for, I don't know, probably 40 miles, 50 miles, because he couldn't see anything else. And he knew the mountainside, if he just stayed along <sighs> it, he would be okay. Um, that was scary. Oh, to say the least. Wow. What a journey. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And, you know, it's, I don't know if it was life changing, but it was quite an experience and uh, revelation in terms of other cultures and um, just the whole life, the, the dog culture in mm -hmm. Greenland. The reason I took this dog out of focus, I wanted to photograph the or focus on the chain because this dog is chained up its whole life after six months dogs are allowed to run free for six their first six months then they're tied up unless they're tied to a dog sled so to me that was about that dog's life um amazing i have one last question i thank you so much for driving us through this while you're telling us i know that was an added task um but you have plans to show the work and um exhibit it uh so i want to give you an opportunity if you want to tell us anything of where we might be able to see it and um and i'm super curious if you think you're going to go back I would love to go back. I don't know how that's going to happen. You know, with mm -hmm. COVID, it really changed everything. I had exhibitions lined up for this year. They were all canceled. Um, and we've rescheduled one of them uh, at SUNY Plattsburgh for January through March of 2022. And wow. it's also going to be in coordination with the uh, Rockwell Kent Symposium. So I think it's going to be a really exciting oh, time to be there to see the show, uh, to see the 
Rockwell Kent Museum and um, and maybe attend a symposium if you can. Uh, for me, it's gonna it's gonna be really exciting. Mm -hmm. And right after that show, the um, Finnamore Art Museum in Cooperstown is going to be showing from April till. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's through June, maybe even into July. And I'm talking with um, both the Portland Art Museum in Portland, Maine, and the Farnsworth Museum in Buckport about showing because they both have very good ties to Kent. Mm -hmm. And um, they have a collection of Kent's work as well. So they they're having a hard time trying to figure out what their schedules and how they can do it and mm -hmm. they're just saying just be patient and we'll figure out something mm -hmm. and then um uh, i'm hoping probably fall of 2022 uh the pensacola college in pensacola florida is exhibiting the work that's wow. what i have planned right now Good for you. And the book is available. At um, RIT Press. Mm -hmm. .edu. Mm -hmm. um, they every now and then they have it on sale. I saw it for like $35 the right around Christmas. So I don't know what the price is now, maybe mm -hmm. 60 or 50. The book is $60, but mm -hmm. they usually are selling it for around 50. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Well, I can't think it's really good too. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> nobody reads it, but <laughs> there's a I appreciate I did. <laughs> oh, I I can't believe how much you read. That yeah. was impressive. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, I was yeah. It's funny. The only reason I said that I was talking to my brother yesterday and, you know, he was talking about the book and saying, you know, I go, well, how did you like reading it? And he goes, well, I didn't read it because I just looked at the pictures. <laughs> and so, but anyway. Oh, goodness. Well, no, I really didn't. I, I, um, I, it just really um, captivated me. I, I think it would have anyway, and I know I've brought up Iceland, but um, being in uh, Reykjavik, um, which is obviously so much more cosmopolitan than anything that you were in, still made me think of these people living through the years that they have, like the the folklore museum in Reykjavik, I met a woman in her 90s making seal skin boots, and everything that they made was so incredibly, um, just stunning, stunning needlework and the fine arts and craftsmanship, and even just the art, just spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I had to laugh when you said desserts because that was my favorite because everybody that invited you had this yeah. ridiculous array and um, I, and you I, made me think of, oh my God, the, the, the food was amazing. But I did go on 
some different trips outside uh, into the countryside. And I remember one, this is, I was able to bring my daughter uh, to Iceland. Um, so this was just in the recent past. And we went out with another family member and we were in the car for about four hours. And literally we took a right and a left. And when I think about that, I just crack up that we, we the extremes that we, um, we're in and also when cloud cover came over and we just had to pull over. And of course there was always dessert and coffee in your cars and we just waited because there wasn't anywhere to go because you couldn't see a foot in front of you. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine this yeah. is that on steroids. So I'm fascinated. Yeah, no, no roads in Greenland. There, yeah. are, there are roads yeah. in the towns and there are roads in Nuuk and Sisimute. Uh, and actually in Umanak, probably a mile of roads. In Nuuk, there's maybe four four miles of roads. Wow. Um, but, but no cars in Islorswit, quite a few places. And uh, around Umanak, there are no cars. Wow. Well, I'm excited that they have someone in charge of climate change. I hope that um, that that gets actively um, pursued because I remember also thinking in the times that I'd gone to Iceland that the pristineness of the environment and how well that was being preserved because Iceland started to have a lot of golf because of the midnight sun. So you could have golf courses open almost 24 seven and what a horrible environmental impact golf courses are. So, so this idea of like, how are we going to mitigate all these layers? Right. But thank you so, so much for sharing this. It was, it was a treat. Thank you for doing all this and making it happen. Sure. And thank everyone who is on for dealing with our technological issues. Um, we apologize and we'll figure it out. And thanks for your patience. And I hope that you look at um, on my website, on under the online photo book book group, we will publish it. It will be on social media. And um, I encourage everyone who's been part of the photo book book group to um, become on my mailing list because what I do is try to provide resources for photographers on bookmaking. And I teach a curriculum called Concept Aware, which is all about concept development for visual creatives. So we'd love to, to have you join us. So thank you so much and expect uh, a little summary of this uh, with the recording to be can followed up. Us, can you send us contact information for your, uh, your pages? Yes, I will. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you everyone and happy new year. Um, thank you for all showing up and great work, up. Dennis. Beautiful, beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Good seeing you, Dennis. Good to see you, Michael. Hope everything's well down there. Yeah, we're doing all right. Good, good. Terrific. And thank you for sharing your screen. Even all that work that I did to get a double page PDF and I didn't get to share it. That's um, pretty funny. Know. Yeah. Now I know. I know how to do it, I think, three different ways, which is kind of impressive. But that's because I have Deb and Matilda and other heads thinking on it with me. So thank you. Thank you. And all right. And the, um, oh, the sun dog. Sun dog. Oh, beautiful. Sun dog. Yeah.
Yeah. And this is a mummy that was found uh, just outside of Umanak that's uh, about a thousand years old. My goodness. But wow. Yeah. Thank you all. Stunning. Thank you so much, Dennis. Bye. All right. Goodbye. Take care.